welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Lisa Ramsey, Professor of Law at the University of San Diego School of Law. We will discuss the Supreme Court's recent decision in Jack Daniels v. VIP products in light of her article, Raising the Threshold for Trademark Infringement to Protect Free Expression, which she co-authored with Christine Haight-Farley. We will also discuss the Supreme Court's recent cert grant in Vidal v. Elster. So welcome back to the program, Lisa. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this. It's super timely subject matter because, of course, the Supreme Court just decided the Jack Daniels case. And as you know, I'm a big fan of your work in this area. So I'm really interested to hear your take on the case and where you think the law in this area should be going in, in the future. Okay. Well, I guess I should start off with the facts of the case. Uh, You know, Jack Daniels is a very famous brand of whiskey and VIP products is a dog toy company that has a line of dog chew toys called Silly Squeakers. And it pokes fun at various kinds of brands of liquor and beer and soda, like Mountain Drool, I think is one example. And the, uh, the, the dog toy at issue in this trademark dispute is called the Bad Spaniels uh, dog toy. And um, what, uh, what VIP did was create a dog toy that had a similar shape uh, kind of a square shape uh, to Jack Daniels bottles of whiskey. Um, but it, what it did was uh, it substituted the phrase uh, Jack Daniels with bad spaniels, um, old number seven with the old number two, right? It had various poop jokes. Uh, uh, instead of Tennessee sour mash whiskey, it said on your Tennessee carpet, right? Uh, 40% alcohol by volume became 43% poo by volume. And then 80% proof, or sorry, 80 proof became 100% smelly. Um, so uh, Jack Daniels was not amused by these poop jokes. Uh, and the the um, and the design of the surface of the bottle too had kind of the black and white label. So, you know, I think most people, even if you don't have a bottle of uh, Jack Daniels at home would recognize that this was poking fun at, at the Jack Daniels brand. Um, and uh, Jack Daniels sent VIP products a cease and desist letter and said, stop selling this product. Uh, and what VIP did was file a complaint in a court, a district court in Arizona, um, and asked the judge there to declare that it was not infringing or diluting Jack Daniels' marks. And so in this case, uh, then uh, you have Jack Daniels counterclaiming for infringement and dilution. And uh, we have this really interesting case, kind of where we have a clash of trademark rights and the right uh, to freedom of expression in the First Amendment. Well, so what's the difference between infringement and dilution? How are they related to each other and, and how are they different specifically in relation to this case? Sure. So let me kind of just send some of your listeners uh, may not be aware, uh, be aware of trademark law. So a trademark is a word, name, uh, symbol, like a logo or device or a combination of all these things that might be within a logo um, that identifies uh, the source of a particular good or service and distinguishes it from the products of other companies. And if you sue somebody for infringement, uh, you're, you are arguing that their use of an identical or similar mark um, is likely to cause confusion by consumers. Um, it used to be that the focus was on confusion about source, right? Or is the accused infringer uh, selling goods in, in, in such a way that, that now consumers think it's the brand owner that's selling these goods? Uh, but a number of years ago, Congress also added... Uh, confusion about sponsorship, affiliation, approval, um, and other kinds of words kind of that talk about the company's business relationship to the infringement statute. And so now um, it's often quite easy to prove infringement if you can show confusion about almost anything, um, not just source confusion or confusion about the origin of the goods. Um, so that's infringement, you, but you do have to show a likelihood of confusion. Um, in the statute itself, there's no specific test as, that you need to apply. And so what's happened in courts throughout the United States, different circuits have come up with different multi-factor tests. 
in the Second Circuit, which is where you know New York is one of the states in the Second Circuit, they've come up with an, a multi-factor test called the Polaroid test. Um, in the Ninth Circuit, which is where I'm located here in California, it's called the AMF v. Sleecraft test, and that's an eight-factor test. And and so the court would evaluate uh, such factors as how strong the plaintiff's mark is, the similarity of the marks, the similarity of the products, um, the intent of the accused infringer, right? Were they trying to confuse consumers or were they innocent in their use of the mark? Or maybe they were trying to uh, poke fun at the trademark owner. Um, so that's infringement. Um, and there are some defenses to infringement. Uh, descriptive fair use is one. Um, and also some judge-made defenses. For dilution, uh, this kind of cause of action is only for very strong marks, they're so-called famous marks. And Jack Daniels is clearly a famous mark, right? It's the kind of marks that are known throughout the United States uh, by people who may not even drink whiskey. And uh, if you sue somebody for dilution of your mark, you don't have to prove this use is likely to cause confusion. And so this is one reason folks like myself have said that this particular law might actually be inconsistent with the First Amendment. We can talk about that later. Uh, but there are two different types of dilution. The first is dilution by blurring. Um, and so here the argument as the, is the defendant's use of a identical or similar trademark um, is is going to harm the distinctiveness of this famous mark. So when someone sees uh, the defendant's mark, they no longer just think about the plaintiff. They think now about the defendant and the plaintiff. So in other words, there are two meanings now in someone's mind. And, uh, and there are some defenses to dilution, right, which we'll talk about later, uh, but that's dilution by blurring. Uh, and there's a multi-factor test set forth in the statute that, that's kind of similar to some of the factors that are used to determine likelihood of confusion, right? You look at how similar the marks are, how strong the mark is, et cetera. Um, for the second type, dilution by tarnishment, this argument's usually made in contexts where the uh, goods are unsavory. They might involve sex or drugs, you know, things that are offensive to some folks, but not others, right? Uh, dog, uh, dog excrement would be an example of something that might be offensive to some folks. Um, sometimes you'll see uh, parties in cases arguing that the sale of poor quality products might tarnish the brand image, right? Uh, so when a company, Hot Diggity Dog, sold Chewy Vuitton dog toys, um, Louis Vuitton said that uh, these dog toys might choke big dogs or something. And, and, and the court didn't agree with that argument, but those are the kinds of arguments that are made. So I, you know, often in these cases, you might see an argument for both blurring and tarnishment, but if it's not a kind of uh, use of the mark in connection with kind of offensive goods and services or potentially offensive goods and services, you might just see a blurring claim. So specific to the Jack Daniels case, sort of how did it come to the Supreme Court and what was the Supreme Court asked to actually decide and what did it ultimately do? Okay, so at the district court level, uh, VIP Products argued that its use of Jack Daniels marks was protected by the First Amendment. In trademark law, there's a special doctrine called the Rogers Test, which was created uh, by the Second Circuit uh, in a case called Rogers v. Grimaldi involving a film uh, that had the title Ginger and Fred. And Ginger Rogers sued. It was more of a false endorsement claim than a trademark claim. Uh, but she sued uh, for violations of the Lanham Act. And the court thought that that traditional likelihood of confusion test with the multiple factors was not a good test to use when First Amendment interests are at stake, when someone is expressing ideas or viewpoints. Um, but the the Second Circuit also thought that the lower court's uh, conclusion that they, that the, the Lanham Act never applies to artistic works was not a good uh, rule either, because then it might allow flagrant deception, right, uh, with regard to the sale of movies or, or books or things like that. Um, so you shouldn't be able, you shouldn't uh, mislead consumers about the source of a book or a film, just like you wouldn't mislead them about the source of a can of peas. And so the court kind of picked this middle ground where they said, okay, we're not going to allow all uses of trademarks in connection with artistic and literary works, but we are going to allow them if this use is artistically relevant to the underlying work, uh, which Ginger and Fred, the title was artistically relevant to the film because it was about these Italian cabaret performers that were called by their audience, Ginger and Fred. 
Um, and the use has to not explicitly mislead consumers as to the source or the content of the work. And in that that uh, that case, nobody, uh, the, the makers of the film were not um, claiming that Ginger Rosard had endorsed it or was the source of the film or was involved in any way. And so what the court said is even if you have some consumers that might mistakenly think she had a connection to the film, that's not enough when First Amendment interests are at stake. So it was a higher higher level of of, inf- of uh, proof of infringement that's required if it's use in connection with an artistic or literary work. Um, and then you have the Ninth Circuit uh, d- decide to adopt this doctrine in the Barbie Girl case, right, where the band Aqua poked fun at the Barbie doll, um, used the term Barbie in the title, but also in the lyrics. Um, and the Ninth Circuit says, this is a great test. We're going to adopt this. And then, and then later proceeds to apply this Rogers test, not just to titles, but also to uses of trademarks in the content of artistic and literary work. So within a film, within a book uh, would be another example of, of how you might do it. Although I can't think of a, an example there, but uh, you know, within a film, within a video game, um, also applied uh, this uh, use with regard to, uh, you don't have to be commenting on the trademark owner like with Barbie Girl, right? So if you use Empire as the title of a television series uh, that is, you know, about it's in the Empire State, New York, and it's about an empire uh, kind of, uh, you know, in the recording industry. Um, Those kinds of uses of words for their inherent meaning uh, are also okay under the Rogers test, again, as long as you're not misleading anyone about the source of the products, because there was actually the plaintiff in that case was a, a record company that was going by the, the brand name Empire Records. So, um, and then the other extensions of Rogers, right, were to uh, the dog toys that here in this case, because, well, later, we'll get to that. But so we're at the district court. VIP argues that this higher First Amendment uh, kind of test should be used uh, because it is engaging in, uh, you know, a humorous parody, uh, right, with its bad spaniels design. Um, but the district court does not agree. The court says this is this is really just a commercial product. Sure, you might be kind of conveying a somewhat expressive message, but I think the commercial aspects of your speech predominate here. And so the court just applied the traditional likelihood of confusion factors and found um, and, and considered a survey, which the survey evidence showed that some people were confused, not necessarily about uh, source, but more about whether Jack Daniels had given permission uh, to VIP to use its marks. And um, and based on this evidence, the, the district court found infringement. Um, on the dilution claim, um, VIP uh, they held that uh, VIP could not take advantage of an exemption for parodies because the court said that VIP was using the bad spaniel's design as a trademark. And the text of the statute says you can't take advantage of this exception if you're using it as a designation of source of your own goods. Um, There is another provision of the act which exempts non-commercial uses of trademarks. Um, And so uh, when the case went up on appeal to the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit disagreed with the district court and said, look, you should have not focused on uh, kind of the commercial aspects of this uh, use of the bad of the bad spaniels design that had the jack daniels marks you should have focused on the expressive uses and applied the rogers test in this case for the infringement claims and you should have treated this as a non-commercial use um, the court said the way you interpret this non-commercial use exclusion from the dilution statute is you apply kind of the first amendment jurisprudence of the supreme court which says if the I think the you know um, the the commercial and non-commercial aspects of the speech are intertwined. Um, often courts will say this is fully protected speech, and so um, the uh, the Jack Daniels Ninth Circuit Court said, "Look, you know, you should have treated this as a non-commercial use because the parody makes it non-commercial." Um, so I go so remand back to the district court. The district court under this now kind of uh, this this approach that's required by the Ninth Circuit says, "Okay, fine." Uh, we'll find infringement, we'll find dilution. And then it goes back up to the Ninth Circuit, Ninth Circuit affirms, and uh, Jack Daniels appeals to the Supreme Court. And so the question uh, for the court uh, was, number one, you know, can uh, Jack Daniels take advantage of this Rogers balancing test when it's using the Bad Spaniels design as a trademark, which a lot of folks say it's not, but, uh, but that was what 
uh, Jack Daniels was arguing. Um, and then the second question was whether or not uh, this non-commercial use exception could apply in this case. Right. So how did the Supreme Court actually kind of rule on both of those questions and sort of where does the dispute stand at this point? Did Jack Daniels just win outright or is there more to decide? Definitely. Jack Daniels did not win outright. There still is a chance that VIP could prevail when the case goes back on remand. Um, So so one, so just to, before I tell you kind of how the court ruled, I kind of need to give you a little bit of more background. So uh, there was a big debate uh, among trademark attorneys and professors as to what kinds of uses of a mark qualify for the Rogers test, right? Is it just uses in titles or content of traditional artistic and literary works like, you know, movies, songs, plays, uh, books, things like that, uh, things with titles, right? Or could it also apply to dog toys or T-shirts or expressive merchandise or, or in any context where someone has kind of created an expressive work, the kind of thing that could arguably be protected by copyright law, right? Um, and so... Uh, and so that was one issue that people were hoping the court would resolve. The court did not resolve that issue. Um, some people didn't like the first prong of the Rogers test that the use has to be, um, uh, you know, have a minimal level of artistic relevance to the underlying work. And uh, the Ninth Circuit had said that that basically just requires almost more, something more than zero. So it's almost like a non-test, but it still required an inquiry into the subjective intent of the artist, which a lot of folks, including myself and Christine Farley, thought was a bad uh, analysis. We don't want judges and juries deciding what's art, right, or what's artistically relevant. Um, and then the court didn't say anything about that in the opinion. Um, there was also a question about, you know, how do you decide whether a certain use is explicitly misleading as to source or content? And the Ninth Circuit uh basically just asked, look, you know, are you um, suggesting that the trademark owner is the source uh, of the good or is responsible for the good? Um, And whereas you have the Second Circuit uh, deciding in the Twin Peaks case to say, look, we decide whether it's explicitly misleading by looking at the multiple likelihood of confusion factors, which include the subjective intent of the artist um, and other things like consumer surveys. Um, In the Ninth Circuit, you wouldn't necessarily need a consumer survey to decide if the use was explicitly misleading. You would just look at what, you know, what was alleged in the complaint. Um, and so uh, so the Second Circuit was still kind of like this kind of balancing test. And you have a case involving NFTs, the, the Birkin, Meta Birkin case, where the court basically went all the way to a jury trial. Um, so, um, so a lot of folks were hoping the Supreme Court would provide guidance on these three things, the threshold test, the, the artistic relevance prong, the explicitly misleading prong. And the court did not do that for any of those, right? What it did do, though, uh, with regard to that second prong, is the court talked about the source identifying function of trademarks and the fact that preventing source confusion is the primary goal in trademark law, right? It's the core reason, uh, you know, that, that uh, we want to enforce trademarks rights, um, which was interesting because I think it, it doesn't talk about sponsorship or affiliation confusion or endorsement confusion in the opinion. So those of us who think that trademark law should really be focused on source confusion, I think, uh, would argue that this, this opinion is actually, you know, Kind of speech protective, right? Um, the the uh, some folks that support, that liked the Rogers test were frustrated because the court did not approve of it. The court decided that it was not going to disapprove or approve of the Rogers test. Um, you had uh, Jack Daniels and and one or two, I think, of its other s- supporters saying that. Rogers should never be applied. You should always use those multiple factor tests, right? In Polaroid or, or, or uh, Sleekcraft. Um, some folks like the Motion Picture Association said, Rogers, you should apply that for, for you know, artistic and literary works with titles, but not dog toys. Um, and, and you had some, you know, some companies that just didn't take a position on the issue about whether it should be applied to artistic and literary works, but but said definitely not dog toys, right, or T-shirts. Um, so you had all these different positions. And I think the court just said, you know what, we're, we're not going to decide this issue right now. But what we are going to decide is that if you try to invoke Rogers, 
to uh, kind of prevent going to this traditional standard likelihood of confusion analysis. And the court doesn't say it should be Polaroid or sleep factors. It just says standard likelihood of confusion analysis um, because the, the language in the statute is likely to cause confusion. The court says that you cannot be using the mark or trade dress, at, uh, sorry, the language or design as a trademark or a trade dress. Um, and then in the second part of the opinion, the court says, we think that VIP is using the Bad Spaniel's design as a trademark and a trade dress. And it points to three things why it thinks that. Uh, first of all, in the complaint that it filed for declaratory relief in, the, in Arizona, it actually said we own uh, right trademarks and trade dress um, in the, pad, the Bad Spaniel's design. Uh, so uh, the court says that this this is you know an, an admission that that, uh, that they are using it as a trademark. So that's number one. Number two, the court looks at the cardboard hang tag that's attached to the toy and says, okay, at the top of it on the left you have your silly squeakers logo, and then at the top on the right you have a picture of a spaniel dog face, which was also on the front of the toy itself, and then underneath it. In a stylized way, you have bad spaniels, um, and you're using this like a logo, and so it's kind of in, in what the court deems to be a trademark spot, right, or trademark space. And and you have some folks has written about this. Alex Roberts has written about trademark spots. Mark Lamley, Mark McKenna just came out with a paper called about trademark spaces. Um, so a lot of folks would say, well, you could, you know, maybe that's a trademark spot, but. But, you know, maybe it's just telling you what the front of the toy looks like. Um, and then number three, the court said that uh, VIP had actually claimed common law trademark rights and has actually registered some names for its dog toys like Dos Peros and, and et cetera. And so said it just has a pattern of claiming trademark rights in its names of its dog toys and, and also the trade dress. And so therefore they were using bad spaniels as, as a trademark and trade dress. Um, so I think one important takeaway though, is the court did not say that use on the front of the dog toy, right? On the surface of the dog toy was a trademark use, which is a critical part of the opinion. I think what that means is if you're displaying a logo, like a parody logo or maybe a political slogan or some sort of mashup on the front of a T-shirt or on a dog toy and not doing anything else, right, to claim trademark rights in it, you might still be able to take advantage of the Rogers test. The court did not say it, it, it just limited to uh, artistic and literary works with titles. So so I think that in a sense that the, the opinion is... Uh, it, it is arguably against speech protective with regard to what I call expressive merchandise, right? The kinds of goods where you would put decorations or slogans, you know, political messages. And if people buy this shirt, not because it's a shirt necessarily, but because it's a shirt with this slogan or with this joke. Um, so I think that's a really important part of, of the opinion is that you can't be using it as a designation of source. And so after this decision, right, trademark attorneys are going to tell their clients, well, if you're selling parody dog toys, you probably shouldn't apply to register the name or, or the design as a trademark, number one. If you're going to file, uh, you should reconsider filing a lawsuit against others who, who sell parody dog toys with a similar name or design. Because once you do that, you yourself can't take advantage of the Rogers test. Um, sometimes people will use the little TM symbol by a word or phrase, right, or a design and, and kind of to, to, to kind of announce to the world, we're claiming trademark rights in this thing. If you do that on a label or a hang tag, right, that could also be construed as claiming trademark rights in that language or that design. Um, after the opinion came out, some folks were talking on Twitter about, well, what if it's the parody design inside it? It has the little R registration R symbol or the TM symbol on the surface of the product, right? Is that a trademark use? My position is that I, I don't think that the company, dog toy company, should be able to get common law trademark rights in, in that context, right? So, um, and so I also think that it should not be deemed to be a trademark use in the context. I, other people disagree. Uh, but I think that's, again, what a major takeaway here is that the court did not say that display on the surface of a dog toy is a trademark use. Uh, but uh, all these other things, uh, you know, need to be taken into account if you're going to be in the business of selling products that include other people's trademarks. So just to clarify, when this case goes back 
on remand to be kind of re-examined mm-hmm. on on the facts. The only effect of the Supreme Court decision is just going to be that the kind of the higher standard Rogers test doesn't apply. And that right. now there's going to be a question of whether or not there's actual consumer confusion. What about the question of use as a mark, right? Is that still an open question of fact that... Yeah, no, no, that's a great question. And, and actually, you've reminded me, I forgot to, to mention another important part of the court's opinion. So first of all, no, the court has decided this is use as a trademark. Some, I, I think, I mean, some folks have said that perhaps VIP can go back below and say, no, wait a second, this is not used as a trademark, right? When you're applying to register something at the trademark office, right? Often uh, this kind of decorative use of a design or language would be deemed an informational expressive use of a trademark that fails to function as a mark or a decorative use of a trademark that fails to function as a mark. So I actually think there's some pretty good arguments here that it's not a trademark use. However, um, I I think that that might be an uphill battle below. What is good for VIP products, though, is there's some great language in the opinion about parody. Now, the downside, it doesn't help out folks that are using marks in satire or mashups that are not commenting on the trademark owner. But what the court says in the opinion is if you're if you're mocking the trademark owner, right, ridiculing them, um, it's less likely this is going to cause consumer confusion. So if you apply the standard likelihood of confusion analysis, um, a accused infringer might still win if, because in this context, right, if it's a parodic use or other kind of expressive use, because consumers are less likely to think that it's the trademark owner that's the one doing the mocking. And during the oral argument, one of the justices kind of just seemed shocked that that Jack Daniels was taking the position that that consumers would think it's it's you know selling something that that has about dog poop or I think the justice used an example with dog urine like they were selling a product with urine in it you know that claimed to have urine on it you you really think that some firm for Jack Daniels is going to say this is okay um, and Lisa Blatt's like oh yeah people might be confused about that you know source confusion so so I think that a lot of the opinion itself kind of suggests that there wouldn't be source confusion if someone's using a mark in parody um, so. Some of us who, you know, so let me back up. In the copyright context, there's this distinction between parody and satire, right? The Supreme Court said in the Campbell case that if you're using a mark in parody to comment on the copyright owner, um, that, that, that it's, it's easier to show that this is fair use. Where if it's satire, right, commenting on the world around us, you need a stronger justification to do that. Um, and you've seen some lower court cases that have kind of adopted this approach in the trademark context. Rebecca Tushnet has a great paper with a co-author that says that trademark law is different. We shouldn't have the same rule in trademark law. Um, and, and you saw this in the Warhol decision, the copyright decision that came out, too. They talked about the difference between parody and satire. Here in this case, they didn't say that satire is not protected by the First Amendment or less protected, but they really did focus on on the fact that if you're commenting on or criticizing or parodying, well, actually, if you're criticizing or parodying the trademark owner, there's less likely to be confusion. So so I think that, that folks that are poking fun at the trademark owners are more likely to be able to, to kind of get a motion to dismiss. The other great thing I love about the opinion is there's a footnote, uh, footnote two, uh, on uh, kind of in the middle of the opinion where the court says, um, you know, you might be able to get a motion to dismiss, right, under Rule 12b-6 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure if the plaintiff does not have a plausible claim of likelihood of confusion in this context, uh, perhaps because the marks are not that similar or because of other contextual considerations. Um, and this is wonderful because that's another debate that's been going on uh, in in the Rogers world, right, is, uh, or, or these other areas where you have speech protective doctrines like commercial use, a commercial use requirement for infringement, nominative fair use, right, is, is do you have to wait till summary judgment, right, to make these arguments or can you knock it out early? Um, I think some of the justices during oral argument uh, seem concerned about the chilling effect of, of the expense of trademark litigation. Um, and so I'm very happy in the majority of the opinion, they talk about the fact that a motion to dismiss is possible, both Rogers cases, but also cases where the traditional likelihood of confusion factors would be applied. Uh, and then you have a concurrence uh, by Justice Sotomayor that's joined by Justice Alito that talks about this concern about the chilling effect of trademark litigation 
and, and kind of warns courts about relying too much on consumer surveys that might just measure confusion about permission or consent to use the mark um, or confusion, misunderstandings of the law. So so I think that there, you know, a lot of folks came out of this saying, oh, yeah, Jack Daniels won, you know, the case and, and all oh, this is harmful to the First Amendment, you know. Uh, but I think that there are a lot of speech protective aspects of the opinion. Um, and, and so I think, yeah, the parody discussion of parody is one of them. Um, but I think one way to kind of think about this big picture is the fact that the court is saying um, kind of basically come up with a rule that discourages applications to register is actually kind of speech protective. Because once someone registers a mark, right, or language or design, um, they're claiming the exclusive right to use that language, that design in connection with the sale or advertising of goods and services, right? Just like uh, Stephen Elster right now is trying to register Trump too small, right, as a political slogan, yeah, this political slogan trying to register it for T-shirts, right? He's saying he has a First Amendment right to register this, but what he wants is the trademark right to suppress other people's speech, right, using it in the same way as him. And so so I think this is another way to think of this as a very speech protective uh, opinion, because it's discouraging people from registering their parodies, their mashups, um, et cetera, because once you do, Rogers is no longer a defense that's available to you. Um, so I think that's an interesting way to look at the opinion. Um, you know, and, and it's not as, as so bad for, for free speech advocates, I think, as some, some would say. So let's shift gears a little bit then and talk about the paper you wrote with Christine Farley. Mm-hmm. The paper focuses primarily on this sort of tension between trademark law and First Amendment rights. And you've talked a little bit about how the Jack Daniels the Jack Daniels taste illustrates some of those tensions and also sort of some doctrines that are kind of intended to help mitigate those tensions to a greater or, or lesser degree. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you and Christine think the kind of historical approach to mitigating that tension has been unsatisfying and what you think would be a better way of approaching the problem. Sure, I can do that. Uh, so, so the traditional likelihood of confusion analysis, right, where a court might kind of walk through the eight factors, right, of the sleek craft test or however many factors there are on the Polaroid test, um, it's expensive, right? You, 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 courts will often not... Uh, get rid of a frivolous trademark case on a motion to dismiss because uh, the analysis of the factors is often fact intensive, right? You need to figure out what's the intent of the accused infringer, get document discovery, take their deposition. Uh, You need to uh, hire experts to conduct a consumer survey. Or maybe if you can't hire, you know, don't have money to do that, you need to hire somebody to rebut the consumer survey of the other side. Um, and so, you know, many of these cases, like the parody cases, are resolved on summary judgment motions, but you have to pay for all that discovery, which is often one of the most important, most expensive parts of litigation other than a trial. Um, so, so I think that that was one of the critiques of the traditional likelihood of confusion test is that it only really works if the two parties litigating have a lot of money. So if you're a small business, an individual maybe a nonprofit organization, um, you might just settle the case and, and kind of give up your right to, to use this language or this design, even though you probably would win uh, later on. So Bill McJevron has written a bunch of papers about trademarks of free speech and has talked about this in the context of parodies, is that usually the accused infringers win when you get to court and the court gets it ruling. But the problem is that often they settle even you know once they receive the trademark complaint or the cease and desist letter. Um, and so a lot of these disputes are just resolved outside of court. So what's great about the Rogers balancing test or the Rogers test um, is that it's easier to get a ruling before discovery on a motion to dismiss. Uh, but this is also true for other speech protective trademark doctrines that Christine and I talk about in our paper, right? So we mentioned uh, that a number of jurisdictions require a commercial use of the mark for infringement. Um, some, not that, not as many, acquire a trademark use of the mark for infringement. The Sixth Circuit is, is one. Um, but that this, this approach has been criticized. So it's really interesting that the court has kind of latched on to trademark use. Um, here, uh, the trademark use requirement people have talked about in the past is different because the argument was if it was a non-trademark use, you don't, you're, you're done, right? No infringement. Whereas the court's approach in Jack Daniels is 
not that that there's no infringement if it's non-trademark use, but you can't take advantage of the Rogers test unless it's a non-trademark use. And then you also have to, you know, the, the evaluate whether the use is, is going to mislead us to source, which I actually think is a reasonable approach, right? Because we don't want source confusion. Um, other defenses we talk about, right, descriptive fair use, that's in the statute, whereas the other two rules, commercial use, non uh, trademark use, that, that's all judge-made law. Um, another type of judge-made doctrine, right, nominative fair use doctrine, where you're using the mark to refer to the trademark owner or its products, uh, parity, which we've talked about. Um, and then a more recent uh, defense, what's, what I call aesthetically functional or ornamental use, right, which was applied in a case called Let Us Turn Up the Beat, where a company was putting the phrase Let Us Turn Up the Beat on the front of T-shirts. Another company claimed trademark rights in this joke, right, this pun for T-shirts and things like tote bags. And the court said, well, we're not going to invalidate the trademark owner's mark, but we're going to say that this use by the defendant is an aesthetically functional, right, decorative use of the mark that's not likely to cause confusion. Now, so these are all doctrines that, uh, except for descriptive fair use, have been developed in the common law, right, by judges because because of the fact that this li traditional likelihood of confusion um, uh, the traditional likelihood of confusion analysis um, is, is burdensome, expensive, and so it, it makes it easier to dismiss these claims early on. Uh, so that's, again, one of the benefits of Rogers. And so the test that Christine and I propose also, our goal is that is that courts would use it uh, to dismiss cases on a, on a motion to dismiss before discovery. So maybe you could kind of flesh out the test you're proposing there. Like, what do you think courts should do initially when presented with a trademark infringement or uh, potentially dilution dilution claim, and you know what would the test look like? How would it play out in practice? Right. So, so um, just to kind of set up what we're doing and how it contrasts what's from what's come before. So, um, in the Rogers test, we mentioned before, if you're using someone else's mark in the title or content of an expressive work, right, that would qualify you for Rogers. And, and now, after Jack Daniels, it has to be a non-trademark use. Um, some of these other defensive doctrines, like descriptive fair use, right, using words to describe the products, um, that's more of like an informational use of the term, right, or a symbol. Um, nominative fair use is also kind of informational use of the mark, right? You're, it's, you're maybe engaging in comparative advertising, right? Coke is better than Pepsi. Or maybe you're letting people know that you're selling used goods or you're offering repair services or broker services for automobiles like Lexus. Um, so, um, and in parity, right, you're, you're using marks in an expressive way to poke fun at uh, the trademark owner. Um, and then aesthetic functionality doctrine is a decorative use. And so um, what we, what our proposal is, instead of having all these different doctrines, which are often hard to kind of work through, and if you're not an expert in trademark law, either the litigants or the judge, people might get wrong. We propose just a broad test, right? Our broad threshold test that would apply to any expressive or informational use um, of language or design that's claimed as a trademark by another. Um, so if you are using a term that is a descriptive for the goods or services like UFO for a documentary about UFOs, uh, right, that would be an informational use. Um, if you are engaging in comparative advertising, uh, again, advertising for used goods or et cetera, that would be informational use. Expressive use would be, uh, you know, a parody, mashup, satire. So we wouldn't just limit it to parody, right? It would be any kind of use where you're expressing ideas, viewpoints, and other kinds of messages, right? Political messages, social messages, religious messages. If you're engaging in art, right, storytelling, all of this would be covered under our threshold requirement. Um, if you were just providing information about the source of your goods, that's not what we're talking about, right? This is this is non-source identifying information or expressive uses that are not providing information about source. So that's the threshold requirement. Again, broader than Rogers, broader than nominative fair use threshold requirements. Um, and then once you satisfy that gateway requirement, then you would go to the two prongs of our test. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things I really like about your test is that it seems to sort of operationalize a lot of the intuitions that we all have as participants in a consumer society. I mean, as you say, the odd thing about trademark doctrine is that it's really confusing and very technical. 
and hard to apply. And it seems odd that we would adopt something like that in a context where we all have such strong experiential understanding of how trademarks actually work and what they actually mean. I mean, in a lot of ways, it feels like sometimes the doctrine is actually more trouble than it's worth. Yeah, completely agree with you. And and, and so in the very beginning of our paper, we talk about the fact, you know, copyright law has this broad fair use doctrine um, and like a four pronged test. Um, but but trademark, we don't we don't. And that's in the statute. We don't have that kind of broad defense for fair use in our statute for the infringement provisions. There are there are more fair use provisions for uh, in the dilution statute because dilution laws, I think, unconstitutional, right? Uh, you know, uh, because it's not regulating false and misleading uses of trademarks. And, and some people say, oh, well, the defenses or exemptions help you out here. But I I still think it's unconstitutional even with those. But that's we'll talk about that later. But um, but I think that um, that I think that's that's what we're trying to do is push back against this argument that uh, that you need to figure out right which of the, of the defenses apply. Often you'll see an, an answer to a complaint right will include all these different defenses, and then the judge will have to work through which ones apply, which ones don't. And I think, like you said, I, ours is just we're trying to include everything that is protected by the First Amendment, right? Uh, kinds of false and non-misleading uses of language and design. Um, you know, decorative use would is also, we think, encompassed in the phrase expressive use, but we note in a footnote, if you want to throw in decorative use in there, that's fine, right? So maybe using the color green to convey that, you know, this is an environmentally friendly product or something like that. Um, it could include shapes like, uh, you know, crystal, whole, uh, crystal head vodka, right, uh, is sold in a skull-shaped bottle. Globefill owns a trademark registration for that shape, also a design patent and a copyright. Uh, the patent and copyright rights will dis- eventually expire. Trademark rights could last forever if they're still using that bottle skull shape uh, as a mark. And so, um, so I think that would be an example of if someone sells, you know, empty bottles in a skull shape, which is what TJ Maxx was doing. Globefill just sued them for infringement. Um, I think that that decorative use should qualify for our test and for, for other, you know, defenses. But of course, the question is which defenses apply, right? When uh, the other couple of weeks ago was that uh, DeSantis uh, was was try- promoting his book and then I don't know if he was selling or his supporters were selling these hats that had uh, DeSantis for president and it was written in Disney's script, right? The, the, you know, the, and a lot of folks said, oh, you know, is this infringing or not? And, and I didn't think it was infringing, right? It was pretty clear to me this was political speech. But at the same time, the question is, well, what doctrine applies in this context? And it's hard to know. And so I think under our test, it's pretty clear, right? This is an expressive use of the stylized version of the Disney marks. So then we would go to the two prongs of our test. Would you like me to talk about that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, one of the, the benefits of our test is we try to tie it more to the language of the statute because that's one of the critiques by Justices Gorsuch um, and, uh, and and Thomas and Barrett. They're not really sure where the Rogers test comes from, right? Uh, you know, is it is it a required by the First Amendment? Is it a gloss on the Lanham Act that you know? Does constitutional avoidance doctrine apply? Um, and so we say, look, let's look at the language of the Lanham Act, 15 U.S.C. 1125A, which is the provision you can use if you're suing for infringement of a registered mark or an unregistered mark. And there's some preliminary language in there that talks about false or misleading uses of words, names, right, symbols, devices, uh, or combination of these things. Um, and so we, our two prongs of the test, instead of we don't have an artistic relevance prong, our first prong focuses on whether the defendant um, is using another's mark um, to make a false statement about its own products. So, and this could be a false statement about the source of the goods, but also false statements about sponsorship, affiliation, connection, right? Any of those words that are in Section uh, Section A of eleven twenty five, um, and so uh, and so Rogers just has the word source in the test, and so I think that's why some folks don't like it. Um, it also says it has to be explicitly misleading, um, and the and the word explicitly is not in the act, and so we say, look, the word false that's in the act that's in the text, right? We have you know we have confusion about anything. Sorry, sorry, we have false statements about any of these things, um, so that would be actionable. Uh, number two. Um, the second prong uh, is if this use is is likely to mislead regarding the um, source of the goods, services, or message. So um, here, um, 
let's say you're impersonating a company online, right on a website. Uh, there was a gentleman, anti-abortion activist, who set up a website, said, welcome to the Planned Parenthood website, right at the very top of his page. He think he had, he'd registered the domain name plannedparenthood.org or .com in the early days of the internet. Um, and when you first went on the site, it was not clear that it wasn't Planned Parenthood's site. Um, and so uh, if you have impersonation of trademark owners and the content of the site doesn't con- con- uh, dispel that confusion, um, if you have a political organization that is pretending to be another political organization or religious organization, right, is, fa- is using uh, the name of a competitor to confuse about who's the public about the source of political or religious services, that would be actionable. Um, so too would be like what we see under under the Rogers test, right? If you're uh, claiming that this is a Hallmark movie, right, uh, and it's not, that would be actionable, right? If you actually say it's a Hallmark movie and it's not, that would be a false statement. But if things that you do in your marketing or in connection with the film, uh, even if they're not false statements, are likely to mislead about the source of the film or the television show, then, then our second part of our test would apply. And, and we don't have any factors that need to be discussed for this, but we do talk about the kind of evidence you would consider. And it's the same kind of evidence you would consider under Rogers, right? You look at the content of the use, right? What are the words, the designs being used, and are they being used for their inherent meaning, right? Is the word empire used because you're trying to comment on the about the plaintiff, or is it being used for its dictionary meaning? Or punch bowl is another example. Uh, Punchbowl was uh, actually uh, a case where a Ninth Circuit court applied Rogers to this use as a source identifying name, but the Supreme Court didn't mention it in the Jack Daniels opinion, which is frustrating. The, the Supreme Court said, oh, no, nothing to see here. Rogers only applies to non-source identifying uses. What we're doing is not is not a big deal, but that wasn't true at all. In the Empire case and the Punchbowl case, um, the uh, the defendants uh, were actually using these phrases as trademarks. So, so we say, look at it. You know, why are you using the word? Is it for its pre-existing meaning? Is or or if it's an expressive use, have you changed the words in some way? Right? If you added expression to it, is it Barbie Girl? And then you have lyrics right in the song that are commenting on Barbie. Um, so that, but that's just one piece of evidence. The second type of evidence would be the context of the use. And this is, are you using it as a trademark or not? Right. So again, it's kind of consistent with the decision. Uh, and we say it's not determinative, right? Uses as a trademark or more likely to mislead about source, but not always. Right. Uh, and so, um, and so we provide some examples in the paper about that. Um, and then finally we say you want to consider the products that are sold under the mark or provided under the mark, right? Are, is it political services, an artistic work? Are you selling beer? Right. And, and, um, and, and if you look at the content of the use, the context of the use and the products, um, those three things that, that, uh, they can tell you whether or not this use is likely to cause confusion. So for example, if you're using Nike, um, as uh, uh, on, on a label for shoes or T-shirts, that's probably going to confuse about source, right? If you're using Nike in the name of a movie about sneakerheads, right, or about Nike itself, maybe it's a documentary, that's probably not going to mislead about source unless you do other things to suggest that they're behind it. Um, if you use the word Nike in the title and content of a book about the Greek goddess of victory, right, this is not using it to talk about the trademark owner, it's for it's a different meaning of Nike, um, that also would not be likely to cause source confusion um, in, under our test. And then we just think it, it's what we like about it is it's more closely tied to the language of the statute. It doesn't require judges to decide is this artistically relevant or not? We don't have to decide, is this a parody or not a parody? Is it commercial? Is it non-commercial speech? Doesn't really matter. You know, I mean, sure, you want to consider it, but it's not going to be determinative, right? Whether it's a trademark use or not, not determinative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about it for me is that it seems to grapple with one of the problems that I think is so prevalent in a lot of, in a lot of trademark cases that it, it seems like, as a trademark owner under current doctrine, sometimes you can you can get to a jury even with a claim that sort of like technically satisfies all the doctrinal factors without actually there being any kind of plausible likelihood of, of consumer confusion in the first place. Like, like everybody knows what's taking place, but you can still sort of satisfy enough of the factors that you can sort of survive different procedural moves and get potentially get yourself 
Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think one of the reasons is because Congress added this language to the likelihood of confusion provision about confusion about source, sponsorship, affiliation, approval, right? And so, you know, the jury or the judge might think, you know, no, not think that, that the trademark owner is the source of the goods, but I think it, it's not unreasonable to, to think that under current law, you have to give consent. And and so a lot of folks surveyed by Jack Daniels said, yeah, well, well, VIP probably has to get permission from them to, to do this parody, don't they? Right. And, and you know, all these uh, you always see these, um, you know, articles and television you know, interviews where people are talking about lawsuits. Right. And so the consumers, I wouldn't be surprised if consumers think you need permission. And I think that's what's great about the concurring opinion, which says that this kind of confusion shouldn't matter in cases that implicate First Amendment interests. And so that's why I think it's such an important part of the opinion that that we have this focus on source confusion. And, and so I think that's so we were excited when the opinion came out because we'd already written our paper. We actually edited it a couple of days after where, where our, our final draft's going to come out, be published in a week or two. And we were really nervous the court was going to throw the whole test out because we, you know, and our paper would become obsolete. But What's nice about it is we did add the developments of Jack Daniels to our paper, and it, it's consistent with what we said. Let's focus on source confusion. Um, and so under our test, uh, you know, confusion about whether the parties might be connected, that's not going to be actionable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, again, if you're making a false statement about whether they're related, that's actionable under the first prong, but not under the second prong. Yeah, I mean, the cynic in me, honestly, looking at the Jack Daniels case was like, what Jack Daniels is really complaining about here isn't that anyone's going to be confused about who's making the bad Spaniels dog toy. What, what they're complaining about is the fact that VIP is essentially free riding on some of the commercial goodwill associated with their brand in order to sell dog toys. In other words, they're they're parodying us because they think the parody will help them sell more goods. And that's true, but I guess my question is, should we care about that? Well, yeah, no, and this is a big debate. A lot of trademark owners um, and attorneys, right, think that we should protect uh, the goodwill invested in a mark, right? Brands spend a lot of money and time, right, advertising their marks. And I get that, I, you know, that they don't want others to free ride and that they want to protect the, the brand value. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we know now that, uh, you know, after Tam and Bernetti, that the First Amendment applies to trademark law. So, so, so what I propose in some of my other articles that I've written, uh, you know, most recently uh, a paper called free speech challenges to trademark law after Matavi Tam, as I say, you know, we need to think about, you know, are, are these goals, if you apply traditional like intermediate scrutiny analysis, right, is protecting free riding a substantial government interest when there's no confusion, right, which is what dilution law does. And I conclude no, right? I mean, it, you know, in a sense, just protecting an investment for the sake of the investment why would we do that, right? Uh, why not focus on consumer confusion? But even if you did think that that was a compelling government interest or a substantial government interest, which I think some folks might, right? A lot of judges and juries don't like people messing with brands, right? Then you, But then you can't stop there, right? Then you have to say, okay, well, does this law further that goal, right? Does it actually protect the investment? And, you know, sometimes it does, right? That's what dilution law does. But then the final step is you have to ask, well, does this law harm protect expression no more than necessary, right? Does it harm truthful, non-misleading expression? And that's what that's what dilution law does, right? And so, our, and that's what a broad uh, likelihood of confusion standard, right, that allows uh, claims based on confusion about consent, right, does, is it harms uh, expression, it harms fair competition. And you have to think about, you might say, okay, well, protecting goodwill, even if you think protecting goodwill in a market is a goal of trademark law, you also have to note that protect promoting fair competition is a goal of trademark law. And if we're going to, and those two goals are going to conflict, right? Uh, if we protect goodwill and, and don't also think about the harm to fair competition, um, you know, we, we, and Congress has clearly recognized that fair competition is good, right? They've added that uh, there's also an exception for comparative advertising in the dilution statute. So, and we have judges who have created a common law comparative advertising exceptions. So I think that and we have cases like traffics and Walmart, which are concerned about deterring competition. Um, and they note that, you know, copying is OK if as long as you're not violating patent copyright laws, et cetera. Uh, so so my hope is that the court in a future opinion will kind of come out and say, look, you know, it's fine to protect the goodwill and reputation. Um when the use is confusing, right, or misleading. And if you look at a lot of this language that's quoted about the goals of trademark law, they talk about protecting good and real reputation from someone who's imitating, right, from who's confusing. And I, you know, I, I, 
I haven't seen any language in the Supreme Court opinions which says we should be protecting goodwill when there is no confusion. Um, when I said this during a lecture a couple months ago, someone said, well, the dilution law shows that Congress thinks we should protect the goodwill reputation with, you know, without a finding of likelihood of confusion. And I, I would have to concede that. But what's interesting is if you look at the intent of the act, which is set forth in the statute, which is unique, right? Normally, you don't see in the text of a statute the goal of the law. But what's in that in that section, it's 15 U.S.C. 1127. Uh, it's the definition section at the very end. They have the intent of the act. It doesn't say that protecting the goodwill and reputation of the trademark owner is one of the goals of the Lanham Act. And I think that's really important. So when Congress added a dilution claim to the act, it did not add that as a goal. So, uh, so I, I think that's something. And so one of the points I make, I, I just, uh, I'm almost done writing a blog post uh, for Eric Goldman's blog. And I'm going to note that this case might come back, this Jack Daniels case might come back up to the Supreme Court because, right, VIP now uh, can't take advantage of the parity exemption to dilution. It can't take advantage of the non-commercial use exclusion to dilution. So what can it do, right? Its use is probably going to harm the reputation of Jack Daniels, right? Poop associated with dog toys. So unlike like the Chewy Vuitton case, right? I think it doesn't have a really great argument here. It's not going to harm the reputation. So I think VIP needs to argue that the dilution by tarnishment law is unconstitutional, right? It, this law targets offensive expression. Tam and Brunetti targeted offensive expression were deemed to be viewpoint discriminatory laws. Um, so, you know, at some point this next week, I'm going to send an email to the attorney for, for uh, VIP and say, hey, have you guys, you know, I hope you're going to make this argument. Uh, and, you know, a number of, of professors have argued that uh, dilution law wouldn't satisfy intermediate scrutiny analysis and, and that arguably you should have to satisfy strict scrutiny analysis because it's a viewpoint discriminatory rule. And I think it's not just the tarnishment provision. I think the blurring provision is also an unconstitutional, uh, you know, regulation as well. And I talk about my arguments are in my free speech challenges to trademark law paper. So Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the program today and, and talk about the Jack Daniels case, the briefly talk about the pending Elster case and do so in light of your fascinating uh, paper uh, sort of proposing a new way, and I think a, a more coherent and effective way of thinking about the problems that are, that are posed in trademark law. Well, thank you for your feedback on the paper. And again, uh, it was a pleasure to be here on the show. Uh, it's, you have a wonderful podcast. Mm-hmm.